Well, if you didn't know before, today brings us to the last day, the culmination of Revelation. And the only reason I said didn't put conclusion because it didn't rhyme. So I thought I'd start it with it, that uh, it's the series called The Triumph of the Lamb. And he has indeed triumphed, and he will triumph. It's been a journey that began at the early days of the church history, where we saw the seven churches of Asia Minor. Our guide has been the Apostle John, the last of the living apostles who walked with Christ. And we saw, and he heard this, and he wrote in the first verse of Revelation. He said, the uh, the revelation, which means the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. They will be soon. It's a constant theme. They will be soon. And then he was told in verse 19, what he recorded for us in verse 19, he said, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are that are, and those that are about to take place after this. What John saw, the first thing that he saw was Christ. Christ. Glorified. And he fell down and worshiped him. The only response that he could have was he fell down and worshiped. He then, we saw the things that are. We saw the seven churches in Asia Minor, a literal literal seven churches on a postal route in Asia Minor where this revelation, this book was dropped off to each church. And then the things that will take place, what's taken from church history, taken all the way to the seven years of tribulation, all the way to eternity, ending with the rulers of this age, the Antichrist, the false prophet, being cast into the lake of fire, and Satan being bound for a literal thousand years when Christ rules from his throne in Jerusalem, which you, if you are a believer, you will be a part of that. And then after the thousand years, Satan being released, deceiving the nations once again. We don't know for how long, but a very short time. And he leads one final attempt, and they're squashed. They're squashed. Those who rebel are killed and are judged and then thrown into the lake of fire forever along with Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. Last week, we were shown the new Jerusalem, and what a place it will be, the future eternal home of all who have obeyed the word of the Lord God throughout the ages. And this morning, we'll conclude the book by seeing what awaits us inside the city and the concluding words from John, the angel, and from the Lamb himself. Would you pray with me again as we finish this morning the glorious book of Revelation? Father, we come to you this morning, 
anticipating what awaits in the near future. We especially thank you, Jesus, the one who has conquered his enemies, sin, death, and the devil, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because, Jesus, you're victorious, we shall be also. And this morning, we may we hear what the Spirit has to say to us. May we be changed. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what we have before us in the concluding chapter of Revelation is this, and I quote, it is the restoration of all that was lost in the Garden of Eden and so much more. <laughs> restoration, that's why it's on the back of your handout. It just, you see there what was lost in, in Eden and what will gain again. It is the conclusion of the grand story of the Bible. This is it. This is the good news. This is the amen. It is Eden renewed and human life as it is meant to be lived. I'm ready, are you? Well, let's look what awaits us inside the new Jerusalem. And it's a city that I would call a garden city. I don't want it's New Jersey, the garden state. Is that what the garden state is? I've never been there, but I've heard that I don't want to go there. Sorry, sorry for those who New Jerseyans. But for there to be a garden, for there to be life at all, there must be clean water, clean living water. And the New Jerusalem has this. It has the river of water of life. And one of the major differences between the old creation, all right, the one we live in now, the old creation and the new creation, the old cre creation has seas, it has oceans. It has weather patterns. Well, the new Jerusalem has no more sea. My wife is very bummed out about that. But if there aren't any seas, is there any rain? I don't know. How then, if there's no rain, how can there be life? Now, we understand drought, do we not? We're in the midst of it. But, hear me, just as it is now, it will be then. The constant eternal truth is God will provide. God provides everything that we need. Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, throwing throw flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this is both literal and spiritual. This is, I touched on this last week, when Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman in John 4. And the Samaritan woman went to the well. She was there in the middle of the day. Why? Because she didn't want to be seen by others around her. And Jesus talked to her and said, give me some water. Jesus said in verse 14 of John 4, he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Water that brings eternal life. I, I, I'm ready for that too. Later in John, is, in John 7, Jesus said this concerning the Spirit of God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's an invitation. He's not talking about physical. Do you thirst? Do you need something more than this life has to offer? Do you need Jesus? Do you need him? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A river was promised to come from the millennial temple in Ezekiel 47. And in Zechariah 14, after the earthquake, there was a water, there was a river that came from Jerusalem that flowed into the Dead Sea and everything then became green. But this is a different river. This source of abundant life comes from the throne of God and the Lamb. The throne of God and the Lamb, both are sitting on it. If you need a, a scripture passage that teaches and proves the deity of Christ, this one does. The Lamb sits on the throne with the Father. Well, what else awaits inside the new Jerusalem? Just as there had been a river in Eden, there's also a tree of life. Verse 2 tells us, through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Heaven will be a place that has very, very, very good food. In the marriage supper of the lamb, there will be choice meats along with choice wine. Sorry, you teetotalers. Real, legitimate wine. Well, here in the New Jerusalem, the collective tree, a tree on both sides of the street, on both sides of the square, having 12 different fruits one for each month of the year. Now, I know that some of you have to be asking this question because I asked the question myself. If there's no sickness, if there's no death in heaven, I would say in the eternal state, why would the nations need to be healed? A legitimate question, right? Why, why do they need to be healed if there's no sickness? Why this? Well, the word that is translated healing means health-giving. One man has said it is that if the trees, it's if the trees are a superfood and a supernatural vitamin, it promotes spirituality. What a time it will be. God provides a pure river, a tree of life. And also in the New Jerusalem, we will see the throne of God. In verse 3, John continues, No longer, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The thousand-year reign, when Christ comes back, when he comes to rule on the earth, the thousand-year reign, the 
it lifts a curse on the earth. It, is, it does lift a curse, but not total deliverance. There is still people who are sinners who are living in this millennial kingdom. It's still possible for a sinner to be accursed here. Isaiah wrote of this time. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. Now listen to this. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. So in the millennium, in the thousand year reign, there will still be death because there's still sin. But now something, nothing, nothing remains of the residue of sin. The eternal state, sin's gone. No more of I have to worry about what I think about. How did, where did that thought come from? How did that get here? None of that. There's no residue of sin. And think about this. There's a garden there. We'll be able to work in a perfect environment. We will be busy. We will be busy doing things, working with a true purpose. For many of us now, work is a dirty word. Not then. Not then. God and the Lamb are with us. No sin, no hiding, total innocence. Well, what else awaits? Blessing and fellowship await. Picture it. Immediate access to God. They will see his face. Before that, now in the old creation, if we see God's face, what happens? We die. We die. But now... People are glorified. They see him and they live just as it once was when man and woman, woman walked the earth at, with God in the beginning. Just when they walked with him in Eden, they will see him. Well, how can this be? It's because mankind is shared in God's holiness. The lamb has provided for us his righteousness and his name will be on their foreheads. We are his and he is ours. He has us marked our name on our foreheads. And night will be no more. No more darkness, meaning more than just the absence of light, but meaning the absence of ignorance and evil. Can you believe that? I keep harking over this. The absence of evil. Church, that's what awaits us. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I feel that I'm cheating us by moving on so quickly, but suffice to say, eternity will be so much more than we can ever imagine, and it is worth the struggle. We've seen what awaits us in the new Jerusalem. Now we're told the concluding words from John, the angel, and from the Lamb himself. And it could easily call this the postscript. The divine, the divine ending, also called the epilogue. 
we begin with the concluding words from the angel, which are the certainty of the blessed hope. The certainty of the blessed hope. It is the divine messenger, the angel, that begins. And as Robert Thomas observes, no other book in the scriptures has a more pointed attestation. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. Now, when it says trustworthy and true, in the original language, it can also be translated faithful and true. Where we've heard faithful and true throughout Revelation, Jesus has been called that. Jesus is faithful and true. In chapter 3, verse 14, and in chapter 19, verse 11, and when he speaks, when Christ speaks, he tells the truth. No lies. No falsehood. And when he speaks, it comes to pass. Well, this verse is referring to the written word, specifically the, the, this writing, the writing in Revelation, but all Scripture, not just in this book as such. Yes, the Scriptures say it is self-attesting. It says that we can believe it, that it is true, that there is no fault. But this contains, pertains to Revelation. There hasn't been a single exaggeration, a single falsehood. Anything uttered or written in this book that isn't true. It will come to pass in God's timing. And the angel is specifically talking about these 22 chapters in Revelation. The one who now speaks is Jesus. And if these words are true, and they are, and Jesus' words are true, they certainly are, then what now, what he is saying now says is true. Do you want hope? Do you want hope, church? Do you want, do you want to hear something that brings you hope? He promises, and behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Blessed are the ones who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Both a promise and a warning. We don't know when, but he's coming. Hear me, it doesn't matter if you don't want him to come back. He is coming. He will do what he says, and no one can stop it. Now, do you want to be blessed? The answer, I would hope, would say, yes. Who wouldn't want to be? Act on what's been taught. Act upon what has been said. Well, the speaker's through these last verses, alternate from the angel, then to Jesus. From the angel, then to Jesus. And then John inter interjects. Then the angel, and then Jesus. And I think that the 95-year-old prophet, again, has hit sensory overload. What's he do? 
Well, the right response is worship. The right response is worship to Jesus. We saw him do that in chapter 1, verse 17. That's the right response. But John also, my words, not the scriptures, he messed up in chapter 19, verse 10, when he bowed down to an angel because he was so overloaded and he was reprimanded. But he does it again. He does it again. And that's the wrong response. But I'm going to give him a break. Chapter, excuse me, verse 8. He said, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. No, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Bottom line, worship God. Worship God. May we do the same. Think with me just a little bit. What do we often worship besides Jesus? Do we worship a team? Do we worship a spouse? Do we worship a school? Do we worship a boyfriend? Do we worship a girlfriend? Worship God. Change your focus. Focus on Jesus. The next concluding words are these. Proclaim the prophecy. The angel continues his dialogue in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In the great apocalyptic book of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, Daniel was commanded, seal up the words. Seal up the book. Why was he commanded that? Because there were things yet to take place. There, Jesus had to come. Jesus had to live. He had to die. He had to rise again. Seal up the words. But in John's book, John's book is an unveiling. There is nothing that, sta- that needs to happen before the events from chapter 4 take place. Nothing needs to happen. Christ can come today. He could come before I finish speaking. Do not dare say amen to that. Although, I'm good with it. Church, the challenge to us is this. If John isn't to seal the words of this book, read my lips. We should not seal our lips either. If John was not to to seal the book, it means that it needs to go forth. It needs to be proclaimed. We cannot seal our lips regarding Jesus. 
We have to speak. A prominent theologian has written, and I quote, any Christian who fails to learn the truths of this book and fails to proclaim it is forfeiting blessing. They go on to say, any preacher who fails to proclaim Revelation's truths is sinfully unfaithful to his mandate. We, I, must preach the whole counsel of God. That's why we've been in this book for as long as we have. People have told me, man, you're gutsy going through that. We haven't heard it, we haven't heard it preached this long. I know, this long. But that's why we preach the whole counsel of God so there is no excuse. People need to know that there is heaven, that there is hell, and that Jesus is coming back, and he will judge, but he has mercy now. We must be faithful to our Lord. We must unseal our lips. The unrepentant sinner and the one who has repented must be challenged. Is it easy? Is it comfortable? No. John goes on. He says, let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What? Why is this here? With this statement here, the question is being put forward Is this your true condition? Is this, are you filthy? Do you want to turn? If you're filthy, just keep on doing it then. Just keep on. There will be judgment. There will be judgment. If you're holy, keep doing the things that are holy. There will be judgment. There will be judgment. Is this your true condition? Or will you turn from it? If you continue on the path that you're on, there will be eternal consequences both positive and negative. The next concluding words are an assurance of reward. The speaker, again, is, is Jesus. In verse 12, I think we can see a common theme. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus here is assuming the role of Yahweh. It cannot be missed. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah wrote this with, he said, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Jesus is God. And for those who are his, 
joy, excitement, expectations of glory. The righteous judge is coming. He will come with his rewards. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And for those hearing this final warning, living in rebellion, the righteous judge coming with perfect justice is quite a different feeling altogether. Especially when we hear the words concerning the majesty of the eternal Christ. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He covers it all. The A to Z, the beginning of the universe to the end of the universe. Everything was made for him and by him. All of these titles represent his eternal being and his sovereign direction of history toward the fulfillment of his purposes. There is a great reward. The angelic speaker now proclaims the truth with the last of the seven Beatitudes. Remember, a Beatitude is blessed are. Well, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Remember the gates last week, the pearly gates, going through the wall of all splendor, of all jewels, walking onto the streets of transparent gold. Literal, symbolic. If it's symbolic, it's even more so. It's more great. It's more better than what we can even imagine. Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20 Sing this truth. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Are your robes white? Have you been washed clean by the blood? But hear me. The righteous will live forever in that city. The righteous will live forever in a place where Christ has promised that he would build. But the opposite is true. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexual immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who lives and practices falsehood. They aren't in there. For those who continue to sin, their residence is the lake of fire. And the sin is unbelief. The sin is not repenting and turning to Christ. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Wearsby writes, 
Excuse me. Wiersbe writes, the root is buried in the ground where no one can see it. But the star is in the heavens where everyone can see it. The root and the offspring of David. We have Jesus' national Jewish name, but in the bright and morning star, we have his universal name, one that speaks of humility. The other one speaks of majesty and glory. As the root of David, Jesus Christ brought David into existence. As the offspring of David, Jesus came into this world, born a Jew from David's line. Both the deity and the humanity of Jesus are evident here. He goes on to say, the morning star announces dawn's soon arrival. Jesus Christ will come for his church as the morning star. But when he returns to judge, it will be as the sun of righteousness in burning fury. Because God's people look for their Lord's return, they keep their lives clean and dedicated to him. Close quote. Now we hear an invitation from the Spirit of God who is the divine spirit to whom Jesus speaks to his churches. Here the Spirit and God's redeemed people echo the same great desire for Christ himself, come! We want you to come! And to those who have not come to Christ, come! Why not? Why do you refuse? Come to Jesus. The final invitation is given. Look at the beginning of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And, the one, and let the one who hears say, come. The Holy Spirit desires to bring glory to Christ. He says, come. The bride wishes nothing more than for Jesus to come. The bride is we, is us. But he hasn't yet, has he? He hasn't come yet. But we, but we know, we know this, because the scriptures tell us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He hasn't come because there are more who need to come to him. Are you one of them? Are you one of them who needs to come? One day, the end will come and it will be too late. But today is not that day. Come to Jesus. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The gift of immeasurable value, immeasurable value that is acquired only by faith. Only by faith. The old hymn is so rich and relevant. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, helpless, I look for your grace. I'm foul. To the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We've come to the final book of the Bible, to its final chapter, and now to the final verses, and we hear the final testimony. I believe that it comes from Jesus himself. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. An historian is, is helpful here. He writes, it was customary in ancient days for writers to put this kind of warning at the close of their books because the people who copied them for public distribution might be tempted to tamper with the material. You know, just change a word here and there to make it better, make it more palatable. However, Jesus' warning was not addressed to a writer. It was addressed to the hearer. The believer in the congregation where the book was read out loud. By analogy, however, it would apply to anyone reading and studying the book today. So it applies to us. We may not be able to explain the penalties given, but we do know this it is a dangerous thing to tamper with the Word of God. The one who guards the Word and obeys it will be blessed, and the one who alters it will be disciplined in some way. Close quote. This isn't the only place that it speaks about this. It, this speaks about Revelation, but there are other warnings in the Scriptures. God's Word are not, is not to be tampered with. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes, You shall not add to the Word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord our God that I command you. In Proverbs... Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Take a Mormon to Proverbs 30, 30 verses 5 and 6. Take a Jehovah Witness who takes away the deity of Christ, or by adding one simple little preposition, A. I don't know about you, but I certainly want to make sure that I'm not speak that I am speaking the truth, not adding or subtracting. A little bit of a confession here. I'm a little worried. In the bulletin and the handout, I added a 22nd verse. There's only 21 verses in Revelation 22. Don't worry, I've already repented. <laughs> Revelation finishes with a promise. 
He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. I'll finish here. My favorite source throughout this series ends his book this way, and I will end our time in Revelation this way. And I quote, The end of the book focuses appropriately on grace from the Lord Jesus, who has been the focus and is the center of God's redeeming work throughout the book. You have the scripture in front of you there. With all, in this context implies with all Christian readers in the churches addressed by this composition, which means all of you. It means all of us who have been studying this book, but it also means all of the people throughout the ages from when John first delivered this book or had it delivered to the seven churches. All the grace of God is upon them. May we partake in his grace. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.